A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Well, that's all right then. Everyone can relax. The world is a better place and Lady Gaga is going to save the planet one bacon dress at a time. Honestly, the fawning over the inauguration of Joe Biden yesterday by the assembled hacks of the TV media was quite something to behold. Apparently the bad nasty man had left Washington and the superhero had arrived with his cape and everything. Anyone would think it was the first time the new president had set foot in the White House when in actuality he's already had one go before for eight years when he and Barack Obama spent most of their time bombing foreign countries and setting fire to the Middle East. In fact, you might say that they actually and their foreign policy laid waste to so many countries like Libya, Iraq, Syria, etc., that all of the refugees that we're now seeing flooding into Europe are actually the result of Obama and Biden's foreign policy. Thank you, Sleepy Joe. His acceptance speech was a snooze fest, entirely predictable and suitably virtue signalling for all his lefty fans and Trump haters around the world. Now, though, the hard work begins, and it'll be a lot more than just removing a Churchill statue from the Oval Office. We'll be talking to Reform UK Party leader Nigel Farage for his thoughts on what happened yesterday, but also uh, on the last four years as well. 0344 499 1000. Meanwhile, back in the world of lockdown, we are greeted with the news that in the first few days of the new year, COVID infections actually went up rather than down, making even the Imperial College modellers concede that the lockdown might not be working. So that's all right then as well. We'll be finding out why, despite the staggeringly high numbers of deaths yesterday, the NHS is still coping with the crisis. Not overwhelmed then. 0344 499 1000. As ever, we need to hear your voices today. How are you coping? How are you feeling? What are you hearing and what are you seeing? I drove down Regent Street yesterday afternoon and it was an absolute shocker. Cycle lanes, buses, no people, empty shops. If traffic ever does return, it will be absolute mayhem. We'll check in with Helen Dale for the latest on Brexit. Donna Harvey on the first day of a new era in America. And Lisa Francesca Nandis here with the new harder rules for quarantine. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let us say a very good morning to Nigel Farage, leader of Reform UK. Nigel, very good morning to you. Good morning. I don't think my characterisation of the love-in yesterday was wrong. Um, it really was quite remarkable how people were treating Joe Biden, not only as if he was the saviour of the planet, but also as if he's never done it before. Yes, and wall-to-wall support for that in today's UK newspapers, you'll mm. notice. Everyone saying it's a wonderful, brave new start. New, this guy's been on Capitol Hill for nearly half a century. <laughs> new, he was the vice president for eight years. New... Uh, shades of it reminded me of 2008, reminded me of the Obama inauguration. You know, Obama was very good at saying, you know, this is our time. I mean, yeah. it all meant nothing. Right. 
but it was lovely platitudinous stuff. And as you quite rightly say, that nasty man, that terrible man, the man who brought peace to the Middle East, the man who made ordinary Americans richer, the man who had the courage to stand up to the Chinese Communist Party and their human rights abuses, the man who even stepped across the line into North Korea in an attempt to get the most dangerous world leader to try to come to some form of agreement. That's how nasty Trump was. Well, let's not forget, he also managed to tame Iran, which was becoming a more and more dangerous uh, rogue state. Um, he took out their main protagonist. Uh, he created trade between Israel uh, uh, and the UAE for the first time ever. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. My favourite speech of Obama's was the one he did in Berlin when he promised to rid the world of nuclear weapons. That didn't go too well. Yes. I mean, this, and, and you touched on it earlier, but, you know, everyone's saying it's a return to normality. So who are we going to bomb then? Yeah, right. Well, because that was normality. And also... And, and by the way, not just... I mean, let's be fair about this. Not just under under, under the Democrats, but under the Bush-style Republicans mm, as well. Yeah. We had decades of American presidents going to war at the drop of a hat, and we, the British, always meekly following on. Um, so I hope it's not a return to normality. Now, clearly, the big theme of the speech was about unity. And... As such, I don't criticise that as a theme because America is very divided. Twice in the speech, Biden talked about the problem in America caused by white supremacists. Mm. And he's not wrong, Mike, to mention that. Of course he's not. There is a problem. There are extremes on the right in America. And it's perhaps a shame that President Trump didn't do more to separate himself away from some of them. Yeah. All right. But what Obama, oh, sorry, what Biden, hey, it's all the same. What he, did, what he didn't mention, <laughs> what he didn't mention was the fact that on the left, we have Antifa and Black Lives Matter who were looting, rioting, causing two dozen murders and, 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 and actually setting fire to a couple of dozen American cities last mm. year over a very prolonged period. So if he really is going to aim at unity, he has to bring both sides together. And you can't just exclude extremists on the right unless you exclude extremists on the left. You need to be even handed about this. And I here's my concern. All right. I mean, apart from his cognitive abilities, but yeah. here's my concern. My concern is that the Democrats have been infiltrated just as the British Labour Party was in Corbyn's years. They've been infiltrated by a new hard left who believe in very dangerous ideas like critical race theory, mm. all right? These are all designed to separate people out as opposed to bringing them together. Think of the words of Martin Luther King. I want my four children to be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And what? critical race theory, what white privilege, what these academic theories that have now permeated a significant part of a Democrat party seek to do is actually divide us all up mm. into black, white, Asian, whatever else it may be. And, and, and my worry is that a relatively weak US president will not be able to control these people. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And it's extraordinary, really, for the America that you and I know very well to have been able to have gone that far left, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's not the America that I know. 
No, it, it is strange. But then who would have thought we would have had a Labour Party in the United Kingdom uh, whose leader was quite openly anti-Semitic? Mm. So there are some very odd things happening, you know, on the left of politics. And indeed, let's, you know, let, let us be even handed. There is some, some, some pretty extreme views on the right as well. Yeah, absolutely right. What do you make of the Donald Trump movement, as he referred to it before he left uh, Washington, and, and, and the fact that he may start, We I was hearing this uh, sort of late yesterday afternoon, he may start a new party called the Patriot Party, um, okay. which would already have, if you count the people on his side inside of the Capitol building, uh, would already have representation if they were to m jump from the Republicans to him. So what's happening here is... The lower house, the House of Representatives, voted to impeach the president. OK, mm. that then goes to the Senate. The Senate effectively becomes a court. We don't quite yet know where that's going to be. But within the next two or three weeks, there will be a hearing and a vote on whether to impeach the president. For that to happen, it would need two thirds of the Senate to vote for impeachment. That would mean, given that half the senators are there from the Democrats, it would need 17, okay, 17 of the Republican senators to vote to impeach Trump. And if they did that, he would be barred from running for office again under the American Constitution, all right? So I think when Trump threatens a Patriot Party, what he's saying to those senators who aren't quite sure what to do, and by the way, their leader, Mitch McConnell, has already made it clear that he intends to vote for impeachment. What he's saying to them is, if you do this, you will blow up the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm old enough, and so are you, Mike, I'm afraid, I'm old enough to remember 1990 yes. in this country. The most successful Conservative Prime Minister there had been in the history of the party. She'd won three general elections, but she'd gone down a new route, which was Euroscepticism. All right. In the country, of course, that was very popular. But her parliamentary colleagues were horrified. They ousted her. And the Conservative Party did not regain its confidence for about 20 years. Mm. And I think we're seeing a parallel here, because if you look at the opinion polling, Lord Ashcroft has done some very, very in-depth polling of Trump, Trump voters. Two thirds of Trump voters, and that's over 50 million. All right. Two thirds of Trump voters do not think he's done anything wrong at all and love his style. A third of Trump voters are unhappy with the events of the 6th of January, sometimes find him a bit over the top, but don't regret voting for him. So if, if Mitch McConnell and the men in grey suits think that by getting rid of Trump and by trying to erase Trumpism from the Republican Party that somehow this is their salvation, they're on the verge of what would be a huge historic mistake. I think to even uh, to, to try and impeach him in the Senate is going to be a huge mistake for the Democrats. I think the best thing they can do uh, is just to move on. Because the one thing that we can be very sure about, Nigel, as you said in your video about whether you regretted supporting him, which of course you don't, yeah. um, is that the reason Trump got elected in 2016 was because people were sick to death of the establishment. They were fed up with being talked down to, uh, dictated to, told what they should and shouldn't believe in. And they wanted something different. And that's what Trump provided. Now, if we go back as you say, to, to, to what it was like before, then the people who voted for Trump are not simply going to go away, are they? No. Oh, good, no, no. I mean, look, Trump, rather like the Brexit vote, 
You know, it, it, people like myself didn't hypnotise the British public over 30 years. Right. We just made them aware of what the European Union was. And the more they looked at it, the less they liked it. And the more they saw Westminster establishment out of touch with their views. The Trump phenomenon is very similar. And I'll tell you something, if Trump was just to disappear, someone's going to come forward and represent the view that is held by over 50 million, maybe as many as 70 million Americans who feel that Washington DC is effectively on a different planet, doesn't, rep doesn't represent their hopes, hopes, thoughts and aspirations in any way at all. And you may well find if, if, if they get rid of Trump and bar him from office a second time, that someone comes along who really is scary. Mm. Well, I mean, there's no question as well that if he was impeached and if he was prevented uh, from ever running for office again, that would have a massive effect for mobilisation of the disenfranchised voters of America. And they would stand by anyone that he put up uh, as perhaps the leader of the of the of the new Patriot Party, but not the candidate, he would find a candidate. And I mean, I think they could actually bust the two party system uh, in the US that way. It is possible. I mean, as we know from this country, breaking two party politics under the first past the post system is a very difficult thing to do. But, but, you know, the well, as we saw with Mrs. May in 2019, when she led the Conservative Party into a Euro albeit a European election, but into a European election, you know, the brand new Brexit party crushed them. Mm. They got 8% of the vote, their worst result for 200 years. Uh, we also saw in Canada 30 years ago, a new reform party that came along and, and the Conservatives who were the party in power sunk to two seats. So it's, it's unusual to break the two party system. It's not impossible. And as I say, if Mitch McConnell and others think that going back to the Republicans being run by a bunch of boring old men in grey suits is their salvation. They are in for a terrible shock. They really are. And I mean, you can also look at Scotland. I mean, the Labour Party used to have a lock on Scotland, 48 seats pretty much guaranteed yeah. every single election. Uh, now, I don't think they'll ever get back into power because they'll never get those seats back. They lost them to the SNP. They're never coming back. No, and equally, of course, you know, before the Good Friday Agreement uh, in Northern Ireland, politics was dominated by the Ulster Unionists and the SDLP. They've almost disappeared, both yeah. of them. So these things can happen. And, and I... I just hope that enough of those Republican senators realise that they actually owe their existence to the fact that Trump, whether you like his style or not, you know, he's a brash New Yorker. We know that. We know that. But has he connected extraordinarily with a huge number of Americans? And when you think, you know, he got 11 million votes more in this presidential election that he got the one before, and they need not to forget that. No, absolutely right. Speaking of uh, elections, interesting conversations being had at the moment around the May elections. Obviously, you've now got uh, your name changed that you yes. that you asked for. The actual commission have, have gone from the Brexit Party. You're now the Reform UK Party. Uh, obviously, you're hoping that there are going to be elections, I'm assuming. I think there have to be. Uh, I, I really think there have to be. We cannot postpone these elections. Some have been postponed, of course, already. Um, <laughs> do you know what? If, because of social distancing and worries about the virus, we decide to keep the polling stations open for two or three days, where's the harm in that? Mm. Where's the harm in that? You know, where there's a will, Mike, there's a way. We can hold these elections safely. It can be done. And I think it must be done, to be honest. Yes, absolutely right. And I mean, it's strange that those who don't wish to have elections are those, it would seem, who fear that they might not win them. 
Well, yes, all those that are in power already. Yes. You know, if, if you're there already, I mean, why not just stay on forever? <laughs> right. um, I mean, you know, democracy is only useful when you're the, when you're on the winning side or, or, or you hold yes. the cards. Yes, I was listening uh, this morning to the conversations around the Ugandan elections where the bloke apparently has been in since 1986 um, and they've just banned the internet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, of course. Um, yeah, isn't it funny that, you know, all these people that accuse Donald Trump of being a monster and an anti-democrat. What have they got to say about China? Mm. What have they got to say about countries like Uganda? It seems almost nothing. Some very strange double standards in our commentary. Yeah, there absolutely are. As far as the way that uh, the, the, the Reform UK party is, is kind of rolling out, are you finding it a bit more difficult than you were expecting it to be? Because obviously you had a launch in Scotland, um, what, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, but there's been so much in the news about COVID that it's, it must be very difficult to kind of break through that. Well, yes, of course, of course. Um, but the other thing is, you know, my entire political career was based on one thing. That was getting out around the country and meeting people. It, you know, I'm not good at very much, but I'm quite good at that. Um, so quite good know, at getting us out of the European Union, you'd have to say. <laughs> well, yeah, I know, but but that was because we built a grassroots movement. Yeah, you know, we built a grassroots movement which you know threatened the very existence of the Conservative Party, who in the end came to their senses. But no, what I've always done is to go and walk about street markets, visit the pubs, do public events in town halls or whatever else it may be, engage with local media. You know, I've done that for three decades. Um, that's what I'm good at. And at the minute, of course, it's just impossible to do those things. So, yes, it is very tough to get something new to really take off when you're prohibited from going out and doing yeah. that. And we here at Talk Radio, as you know, Nigel, have been very vociferous and we've spoken to, to your colleagues, Richard Tice and others, about the whole business of trying to lift this lockdown. And we know now that, you know, we've got a very bad period of, 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 of proper uh, death rates going on at the moment, bad period of infections, bad period of the disease spreading. But we must really pressurise the government, mustn't we, to give, to give us uh, some clue as to what they're going to do and when they're going to do it. They don't know. They, I mean, they just don't know, do they? I mean, isn't no, it funny I don't think they, they do. I, I mean, the response to the leak story yesterday that Priti Patel wanted to close the borders last March to stop the virus getting in is Boris Johnson getting up and saying we have some of the tightest border controls in the world. Well, yeah, 10 months later we do. Well, when, <laughs> when he said that, I, I, I sort of mumbled under my breath, well, apart from at Dover, apparently. Well, yeah. Oh, and if you want to come across by inflatable, that's absolutely fine. By the way, it's calm tomorrow. Mm. So tomorrow's a good day for crossing the channel. You can bet your life people will be. Um, I feel, I mean, look, it can't be easy to be a cabinet member or a prime minister right now. I, I think we've got to be, you know, say that, 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 that these are tough times. Mm. But I do think that we have a government that appears to be pushed by events, blown around by the wind, rather than actually taking a lead. And there's a forgotten group of people out there, completely forgotten group of people. They're not talked about. No one really cares about them because nobody in government actually understands who they are mm. or what they are. There's six million of them and they run small businesses. They run little limited companies. They act as sole traders. And some of them are absolutely being crushed by this. Uh, they can't see any way out. Um, many of them don't qualify for government support for a variety of reasons. Um, and so this huge divide that's opening up in the country is between those that work for the public sector and those who are self-employed working in the private sector. Mm. And for them, 
you know, lockdown is a complete and utter catastrophe. Now, if I was really convinced that lockdown reduced the spread of the virus, I'd probably have to accept it. But I'm not convinced the figures tell us anything like that. No, it's very, very mixed, the picture as well. And I wonder mm. as well, you mentioned that Washington, D.C. is nothing like the rest of America. I'm beginning to think that London is going that way, too, because London is full uh, of public sector workers, full of people who uh, do menial jobs, of uh, blue collar jobs, um, and also full of people that work in charities in the charitable sector. And mm. so it's a very different picture <clears throat> to the one around the country, isn't it? Yes. And, all, and also, and, and this gets forgotten. A lot of those who are in the private sector exist and survive on government contracts. Mm. You know, whether it's firms like Serco, uh, whoever else it may be. Yeah. So, you know, we've seen this massive growth of government. London is the capital. And you're absolutely right. London is now more dependent on public taxpayer money that it's ever been. Mm. I guess we should include the BBC in that too, shouldn't I'm we? afraid so, yeah, absolutely right. Even though they did move a small part of themselves up to Salford for a bit. But listen, Nigel, great to talk to you. Uh, I think we covered pretty much everything now. I think I'd rather you were saving the world than Joe Biden. But that's another story. Nigel Farage, leader of the Reform UK Party, a man that makes absolute sense about so many things, talking there uh, about how Trump and Trumpism isn't going away. You can be sure of that. And if they try and stifle it and they try and shut him down, He'll just come back in another form, surely. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Don't forget, we're live streaming on YouTube. Uh, we're live streaming on Facebook and on Twitter. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, I'm sorry, why would you want to count elephants from space? I mean, that's a, quite an extraordinary news item. That I mean, fascinating as ever, the news read by Jenny there. Um, why would you want to count elephants from space, eh? I mean, I wonder if they could count the number of people at the inauguration yesterday from space. They wouldn't need an abacus, would they? There weren't that many people there. Anyway, let us talk about matters far more important than elephants and space. Uh, they are, of course, uh, matters concerning the coronavirus and the restrictions we currently have in place. And the re latest raft of figures, we've got two sets of things to look at at the moment. It does look as though infection rates are going down. However, it does look as though in the early part of January, according to uh, the boffins and the modellers at uh, Imperial College, uh, that the lockdown didn't appear to be doing anything other than having the opposite effect and the infections were actually going up. Let's talk to Professor Hugh Pennington, Emeritus Microbiologist at the University of Aberdeen. Hugh, a very good morning to you. Hi there. Just a few things to kind of uh, to, to, to round up today, really, Hugh, because obviously I think everybody can now see we're going to be in this position that we're in for quite some time to come. The government obviously reluctant to put a date on when it might be possible to start sending kids back to school or allowing people to travel and, uh, you know, lifting the restrictions. We seem to have a pretty bad situation going on in terms of the number of people dying at the moment. Yes, uh, you have to bear in mind that people uh, dying from COVID were probably infected about three weeks before. Right. So they were infected round about Christmas time, you know, at that sort of period. And, uh, if, you know, they, they're ill for a little while before they seek medical advice and they get into hospital and then eventually they go into ICU and then unfortunately, you know, they, they, they die. So, so that's the, the sort of um, caveat you have to put on all the figures that the deaths are a retrospective analysis of what happened you know three weeks or maybe even longer than that mm. ago uh, the, the the one that's really important in terms of finding out what's happening now is the number of new cases yes. and the number of new cases is coming down so even if it's not coming down as fast as we would like yeah. at least it's 
going in the right direction. I mean, something that would be useful to know, and I know that we're very pesky, we journalists asking questions that we don't always know if there is an answer to, but I was led to believe towards the end of last year that people going into hospital with COVID were likely to be staying in hospital for longer. Are the people who are currently dying from it people who have been in hospital a long time, or, or do we not know that? I don't know, and I haven't seen any figures published on that. And these are usually published a little bit in uh, in arrears because, right. you know, you have to uh, obviously do a survey and you have to look at enough cases so that you can come up with a, a statistically sort of meaningful uh, figure on it. But, of course, um, we're better at treating uh, COVID now, and that might mean that people are going to be in hospital a bit longer because they're surviving and they're surviving and and not and not not going to the mortuary as it were. Yes. You know, dexamethasone was, was obviously a very good development in the sense it reduced the likelihood of dying. It didn't say that you would suddenly turn the corner within a couple of days of having it and be out of hospital. Mm. And likewise the monoclonal antibodies that are being used, the ones that have been used to suppress the immune systems in rheumatoid arthritis. Same sort of thing as as de- the same principle as dexamethasone. And and uh, but we are getting better, and that sometimes means that people will be in hospital longer. They're not being treated so aggressively with ventilation, perhaps, right. as they used to be. And, and that was really not a very good thing for the patients because you're unconscious and being ventilated and hoping that the virus, you know, affecting the lungs would pass on. So it is complicated. It is complicated. And we're seeing quite a few younger people in hospital um, the mortality rate affects the very elderly far more than the younger patients, but the younger patients can have a very serious illness from which they will probably eventually recover, the mm. majority of them, but they may well be sick for a long time because we know that this virus is not just causing a, a lung problem, but it goes to other organs and all that. All that has to manage in hospital. Yeah, but- I mean, it's a very odd thing, isn't it, that it affects people in so many different ways. I don't think, I mean, you'll probably tell me I'm, I'm, uh, this may have happened before, but I don't think I've ever seen a virus which treats people so differently, whereby some people can have it uh, without any symptoms whatsoever. Other people can be killed by it. Other, other people can be just, um, uh, you know, slightly unwell for a few days. You know, it's a very big, broad range of effects, isn't it? That's right, and we're learning more as we go along. But all that's fairly, fairly well substantiated by the the data that people have collected across the world. You know, looking at their cases and and looking at asymptomatic carriage of the virus. I mean, you know, actually, this is a very common phenomenon with, like, for example, the bacterium pneumococcus that causes pneumonia mm. and 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 can cause big outbreaks of pneumonia. Not so much in the UK, but other parts of the world. Many people carry that bug without having any kind of illness at all. Sometimes it takes off and it causes pneumonia and it can cause a severe kind of meningitis. And we have a vaccine against it as well. Mm. So that, that's not a very good parallel because it's a bacteria, not a virus. But these general principles are the same. You can sometimes be infected with something without coming to any harm at all. Uh, and, and other people, and often for reasons we don't really understand, um, have a very hard time. With COVID, it is a fairly straightforward relationship between age and the likelihood of having a very hard time. The older you are, the more likely you are to have a hard time going to hospital and unfortunately die from the virus. Mm. Let me ask you this question. Last summer, when uh, everything sort of reopened in July, pubs opened, people went to pubs, people went to beaches, people went to marches, people were out and about in parks and things. And there was a period of time, certainly in London, when the disease was thought to have gone, that there were no new cases, 
Uh, doctors were saying that basically, you know, we think that it's uh, that it's gone away. Um, where had it gone, and why did it come back? Well, it hadn't gone away in Spain, sort of thing. It's a, a, a very crude kind of a, a statement, but mm. there's some the people went abroad for holidays. You know, we opened up travel, and quite a few of those people brought the virus back, and they weren't necessarily doing it, you know, with, with, with any any kind of illness associated with it. You know, they just picked up the virus, came back, and then the virus took off again. And it, it wasn't so much that the virus was lurking somewhere in the undergrowth and it suddenly took off again. Right. It, a lot of the virus cases, uh, and we've done this by doing this sort of fingerprinting, the genome sequencing of the virus, that shows that it was imported virus that really got the, the second wave going, that we really went very good at controlling the um, importation of the virus at our borders. And, and that's now become a bit of a political issue, should we have done that? and so on. And of course, it's very difficult to do unless you have a very complicated and straightforward system for checking travellers and all that kind of thing, which we didn't pay too much attention to that. We thought that, you know, we'd got rid of the virus or we were well on the way to getting rid of it. Problem over. No. Yes. And which unfortunately would suggest that the problem will never be over unless it's eradicated altogether, which it will never be. Well, yes. I mean, we are going to be in the hands of how well other people are controlling their virus. Like, for example, United States yeah. and Brazil and countries which really haven't done at all well in, in damping down the virus, where the virus is still on the rampage. And clearly we will, I think, if we can get our numbers down to really quite good low levels, helped by vaccination and also by keeping social controls up, you know, it'll have to be a mix of the two. If we can get the case numbers right down, then we have to really pay our attention to imported cases. And that's what China's been doing. They got rid of the virus in a sense by having very strict lockdowns. Um, but they're now really worried about importation of virus. And it's the same in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, but, it's we also have, but we also, Hugh, have to think about the economy and we also have to think about people's livelihoods and the collateral damage that's being done by all of these measures, which if, if we do what, what some of the scientists are suggesting, will always be in place. And that's not really an option. No, that's true. That's true. No, we, I mean, the one good news is the vaccination programme and, you know, we're putting a lot of weight on that as really getting to grips with the virus and getting case numbers right down. It's too early to say how successful we'll be at that because the vaccination program at the moment is focused on saving lives and preventing the infection of the elderly and, and healthcare workers who are exposed to the virus. Um, and that is not going to have a big effect on the circulation of the virus. It's only when we move to the younger people and the vaccine program moves to them that we might see a big effect on the re reduction in the amount of virus. But we will have to have some social controls, but it will have to be tempered, obviously, by the the, the, the downside of those effects on the economy. Yeah. And that but also on, on people's general health as well, Hugh. It's not just about businesses. It's about people's health. I mean, we've been running all week this week stories from ordinary people um, who have got all sorts of things going wrong in their lives, including health matters, uh, including mental health problems, including depression, you know, all of the things uh, that children go through because they can't see their friends or go to school. You know, this is not simply uh, a side effect. This is a massive problem. No, that's right. And we have to do a, a balancing act between, you know, the effects of, of lockdown or, or minimal lockdowns or tiered systems or whatever, 
we have to do a, a balancing act between that and and keeping the virus levels down. And I mean, the vaccination program might well succeed in that, in the sense it makes the virus much less of a threat to the people who it's going to kill or, or, or put into the intensive care unit. Mm. Of course, that's going to be a big um, bonus for the health service. That The health service can now start looking uh, w w without worry about treating patients with cancer, pe people with heart disease and all the other conditions which haven't gone away. No, of course and, not. Because, which, you know, in some ways have got worse because people have put off going to hospital. Mm. They don't want to go into hospital because they know they're terribly busy. They don't want to go into hospital because they might catch the virus there. So they're, not, they're putting off seeing their doctors being um, sent to hospital uh, and some of those that's having a very bad effect on the disease they've got which wasn't being treated early enough no quite professor hugh pennington thank you very much indeed from the university of aberdeen microbiologist there talking about how there is a balancing act that has to be worked out here there's no question uh, of the fact that the numbers of people dying would suggest um, that there is still a peak that has not yet been reached i mean it was 1800 plus yesterday 1600 plus the day before who knows what it's going to be uh, today and tomorrow and the next day uh, there is some suggestion now that infection rates are coming down um, there is also some suggestion from the imperial college study that the infection rates actually were going up at the start of january um, so whether or not the two things are related it's almost impossible to say the one thing you can definitely say about the lockdown strategy is that it does hurt lots of people it really does you might say that it saves lots of people uh, but it also hurts lots of people and so that balancing act has to be worked out sorted out and defined by the government and people who have been in touch with us here at Talk Radio, people whose stories you hear every single day, people whose stories you read about in the newspapers every single day, who are suffering, um, who are losing business, who are unable to work, who are unable to send their kids to school, unable to homeschool their kids. I mean, it's a massive situation out there which the government needs to address. And I'm not going to stop talking about it until they properly address it. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning to Helen Dale. Helen, how are you? 
Not too bad. How are you, Mike, very, this morning? Very well indeed. I'm, I'm sort of energised in a way by the... Uh, I, I, I like to say that I take my energy from um, sort of opposing people who seem to want you to believe everything that they say. And just by generally being a bit of a contrarian, uh, it kind of fills me with, with energy and, and, and symbolism and, and fight. And so it actually cheers me up. <laughs> Maybe it means you're doing your job. Well, there is there is that. I mean, I do, I do, that. I do more. You're suppo- journalists are supposed to like ex- engage in scrutiny. That's in addition to the scrutiny, the fourth estate, in know. addition to the scrutiny of, of the commons. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I, I, I don't know when journalism died uh, around the world, but it has certainly uh, been in need of a requiem for quite some time now because the idea that people put their trust in politicians is complete anathema to me. You know, I don't care which kind of level of politician you are. I am not going to worship you because I'm a journalist and I'm always going to question what you're doing, why you're doing it and who's paying you to do it. Well, that's a, it is a, a cultural difference, though, between the United States and the United Kingdom. Mm. I've always been, with the exception of Trump, but even there it surprised me. I would find that the British press just don't exercise deference to whoever the big cheese is at the time, whether yeah. it's Boris Johnson or whether it would have been Jeremy Corbyn or Keir Starmer. Or, it doesn't matter. Whoever is prime minister is going to get it Get it on their plate every day from the fourth estate and you just accept that and sometimes it can be stupid like some of the silly questions that have been asked at the coronavirus briefings mm. but sometimes it can be very valuable too but the us doesn't have that same tradition of getting in politicians faces and i'm assuming it's because their president is also the commander in chief of the armed forces and 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 the head of state yes. whereas the head of state in britain is the queen and everybody loves mm. the queen so I think up until Trump, actually, you're, you're probably right to say that. But there was certainly quite yeah. a lot of what certainly Trump saw was very, very impertinent questioning. In fact, he, he called a guy out on it, didn't he? And said, don't dare, yeah. don't you dare speak to me like that. I'm the president of the United States. And I, and I think he was right to do that, not because the guy was asking him a difficult question, but people were genuinely quite rude to him. Well, it, may, it represented a significant shift from what I'd seen in the past, uh, I mean, even when you had presidents that were very, I mean, the one, the one that I remember is, of course, W that he got called because of the warmongering, yeah. I mean, uh, and dropping bombs on everything. And I did see a cartoon, I don't know whether it was yesterday, I don't pay a huge amount of attention to American politics, where basically it had a flying fortress uh, bombing some random Middle Eastern country, and it was just a flying fortress mm. and it was republicans and then in the bottom half of the of the graphic was a flying fortress with with uh, black lives matter and trans lives matter and all these different stickers all over it that you associate with uh, oh, on the pride flag that you associate with the 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 democrats mm. but it was the same flying fortress bombing the same random middle eastern <laughs> country yes. it just had these it had these woke stickers on it yes. and i admit that i did snort laughing at yes. that <laughs> well there is i mean there is a certain uh, truth to the fact that most um, pe- presidents that have been in the White House over the past 50 years or so have not been that different, regardless of which party they've supposedly represented. Certainly in terms of foreign policy, they haven't done much that their previous predecessor wouldn't do. But let's talk about uh, your uh, your piece today, Brexit, um, from uh, uh, Law and Liberty, um, which is a, a magazine, I think. Uh, Brexit has left, in America. Brexit has left the building is the title. Well, what I did, I, I, I can't remember whether it was you who asked me or maybe it was Kevin when he was filling in for you, asked me what did you 
asked me, what did you think of the agreement? Yeah. And of course, this was just after it had been signed, so I hadn't read it. Right. So what I did when I wrote the piece for Law and Liberty is for an American audience, um, tried to summarise some key points that came out of the uh, the free trade agreement with the EU or the cooperation agreement, as they're calling it, and uh, uh, and how it differs from the pre-existing arrangements mm. i didn't try to get into the weeds in too much detail like level playing fields or that kind of thing because people's eyes just glaze over they really do they really do and i tried to get across why fisheries was such an issue and why it very nearly scuppered the whole agreement mm. and i mean i hadn't i read one newspaper where they said all oh, this very nearly scuppered the whole agreement and then sort of five or six other journalists who were covering the story and obviously have contacts uh, in Brussels and in Westminster, the same story had been told that Boris Johnson over the the EU trying to exert more control over fisheries with that what they called this hammer clause, which would allow across the board retaliation over the whole of the agreement, not just in the fisheries area, mm. um, by the European Union. And Boris basically was at the point on the Monday of that week of scuppering the whole agreement over the fish. Mm. And so I've tried to explain the significance of the fish, even though they're only between one third and one half of one percent of Britain's total trade with the European yes. Union. But there, are two, but, there are things, but there are two things about that, aren't there? Because one of the things about the fishing business uh, is that Britain pretty much let the fishing business die from Britain's yes, perspective. Did. So it's not the fact mm. that it's not an important business and could not be, again, an important business. It's the fact that uh, the, those who argue about rejoining the EU say, well, why are we doing this? Because there's no point. The fishing business doesn't matter. But the only reason it doesn't matter is because we made it unimportant. Well, yes, this is that. And that's why I, I put the history in the piece of going back to 1973 uh, with uh, Ted Heath, where you had uh, the fishermen just were not adequately compensated. Mm. And it's interesting, you're now getting complaints from fishermen in the European Union because the the agreement sets up a big, quite a big fund for them um, because they're ability to, to catch as much in, in British waters is going to diminish over quite substantially over the next five years. And they're complaining that it's not enough money. And I'm going, this is very interesting. This is the same argument that happened historically. But the thing is, at least in the EU, they've got five years to prepare for it. In 1973, there was no transition and uh, so that's one of the reasons mm. why it basically blew up the fishing industry in 1973. People have sort of, well, a lot of leaders remember it, particularly in those parts of Scotland and, and north places like Great Yarmouth and in, in Norfolk. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I've spoken to, 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 to people about the fishing business and obviously in the East Nuke of Fife uh, up there in, in the northeast of Scotland, that's a very, very uh, sort of thriving fishing industry. But in yeah. Great Yarmouth, as you say, um, they used to send 40 boats out um, and now they only send about four. Same can be said yes. for sort of the southeast coast, Hastings, places like that. There's just simply yes. not enough boats to do all the fishing, I suppose, is, is the point. Well, yes, and this is why, and I tried to set out in the piece why, if it had gone to no deal, like I know some of the fishing people were, were arguing for because they would have got 100% of the rights immediately. Mm. I mean, you just, uh, there are literally just not enough boats there are not enough British boats and you would finish up with this situation of people selling their quotas off to European yeah. Union boats again, yeah. which was a problem that has existed historically. Uh, so I tried to explain that. And then I tried to set out what 
uh, the issue was with services. Mm. And rather than trying to summarise everybody, I, I did the thing of just going to the part of the agreement that dealt with the legal profession, because that's an example of services. But it's also an example of where the laws really don't line up. And this was part of the issue with the the membership of the European Union is it's not just EU law, which is a very specific approach to to legal drafting and legal reasoning. Um, to, it, they call it su sui generis, yeah, of its own kind, and that's a fair fair name for it. But it's also the law of the European Union countries, which is overwhelmingly civilian. Mm. Roman law and it's just really different and that's not to say that it's worse or it's better or anything like that it's just really different and the the two have never meshed well and to be fair it has to be said they're going to mesh even less well after the uh now that this uh deal has yeah. been signed but the the, the the conversation was always that kind of uh, at that kind of level wasn't it because britain was always a sl slightly reluctant member of the european union and the eu always regarded britain as a slightly reluctant member of it and they they realized that there was something slightly different about britain which was not the same that could be said for every other eu country no that is quite true and and to be fair this was uh, going right back historically um Vernon Bogdanor's books on the European Union and articles and the most recent one, Britain and Europe in a Troubled World, uh, it, it was people like de Gaulle who realised how different the UK was. Mm. And that's he, that was de Gaulle's rationale for constantly saying, no, you will not join the European right. com community as it was then, because he just thought that the UK's ec economy and legal system was were too different. Yeah. Um, and he had good arguments for that. I mean, it's a, and and Vernon Bogdan, or one of the expressions he uses is sometimes your uh, enemies. In this case, it worked because he was opposed to people in both Labour and Conservative who were trying to join the European Union. Sometimes your enemies uh, see your situation more clearly than your friends do, and maybe De Gaulle did. And he also thought that the common agricultural policy, which suited France and Germany, would just be a complete disaster in in the UK. So, he, and it and it was. I mean, even many Remainers admitted that this was a complete stuff up and mm. made food more expensive. And the old system of buying everything from Australia and Canada, which had more, much more productive yeah. agricultural economies, made, made made much better sense. Well, I mean, lots of people as well um, since the beginning of January who have been questioned about whether uh, you know, there were shortages of food, which we were told there were going to be, which, of course, there haven't been. Um, you know, you walk around any supermarket now uh, and you pick up the, uh, the vegetables at random and they're from all over the world. They're not just from, you know, countries that are close to us. They're not just from places that, uh, that, uh, that are in Europe. You know, they're from Africa. I uh, do they're, from, they're from South America. They're from everywhere. Uh, yes, I do think you're trade orientation because it was already starting to orient away from the European Union before the 2016. But there are certain things you will notice if you try sign, and I suspect this is quite close, this is the kind of thing that Liz Trusses and Tony Abbott have no doubt been doing in the background. You will notice if you sign a free trade agreement with Australia, you will notice a lot more and a lot cheaper Australian wine mm and probably New Zealand wine as well, because it'll be routed through Australia because of the Trans-Tasman Agreement, right. which is mutual recognition of standards. It's not harmonisation. It's a totally different system. Yeah. So you'll start to see a lot more Australian wine in 
Sainsbury's or Waitrose and people will say say to me now I can you know tweet at you tweet at talk radio or at you oh but there's lots of Aussie wine in there and you know I buy it regularly and that is true but the point is because it's part of Australia's vast agricultural wealth uh, you will find with Australian wine that it just has absolute advantage not just comparative advantage in terms of costs you will find it just much cheaper than wine from France or Italy. Well, the other Um, thing that probably the Australians will do, and I mean, I was speaking to a Tory MP yesterday who's heavily involved in the Kanzuk kind of arrangements and trying to get more trade going, you know, with with Canada, New Zealand and, and Australia, is that whenever you go to France, uh, you always discover some beautiful wine that you've never heard of mm. before because they don't export yes. it. They just send us the stuff. It's just for that chateau, yeah, yes, but, or that but, region. But, but yeah. some, of the, some of the really good stuff, they just never send anywhere. They just keep it, which mm. is entirely up to them. It's fine for them to do. Um, but mm. it's also everywhere in Europe that you go, wine is an awful lot cheaper when you buy it mm. there than it is here. And also, uh, and this phenomenon that you see in, in France of, of local boutique wineries with fabulous wine and this exists in Australia as well and that's what you tend not to see mm. over here whereas if you go into a into an off-license because you can't buy alcohol in a supermarket in Australia you have to go to an off-license no. um, if you go to an off-license in Australia you see all the boutique wines that you just never see here and once you have a free trade agreement with Australia you will get diversity of choice with your wines and you will probably have to I mean whether a media outlet over here will need to get someone like James Halliday to uh, to to come to the UK and to launch a a version of his his wine Australian wine guide yeah because there there is so much stuff you wouldn't it's not worth getting Halliday in the UK yet because it you don't get the boutique wines, but as soon as you do, then you'll need a wine guide because well, there's listen, so much. I'm more than happy to host him uh, anytime he likes here on uh, Talk Radio, especially once we can reopen the, the building so people can come in uh, and I test mean... it. But let's talk about the, the, the future here because, you know, there will be inevitably a few bumps in the road. Uh, there will be uh, the odd problem to do with some uh, unforeseen thing that pops up. But by and large, yes, there will. Um, by and large, would you say that the Brexit deal that has been done uh, is a pretty good deal for us. Well, the thing with, to remember with trade deals is there was this constant mercantilist thinking where people were going, in order for us to win, the other side has to lose. And there was a lot of that going on in the European Union as well. That's not the way to think about a trade deal. Trade deals are meant to be where both sides win because trade is advantageous mm. and increases prosperity. And the the number of times I've seen basic trade wonk people having to repeatedly say, particularly Australians and New Zealanders, because that's the attitude we have, uh, having to say this to people on both sides, you're being ridiculous. You winning doesn't mean the other side losing. Yeah. And I have to say the behaviour was worse on the European Union side. Oh, yeah. And then at some point they just dropped it. Mm. And uh, I mean, there's a various news stories around uh, where people saying that new negotiators were brought on board and that kind of thing, where they just dropped the intransigence and it became about a mutually beneficial arrangement. Is it perfect? No. Um, everybody, on, lots of people on both sides can find things to complain about in it, but it is much better than many people anticipated and also it achieved some really quite remarkable things like uh, uh, no quotas and free 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 trade in 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 goods 
And, uh, you know, some of those things were really, really quite impressive mm. and I, I didn't expect it. I no. thought you would sort of finish up seeing sector-by-sector sector deals over the course of about six months or a no, year. Exactly. I didn't expect it. No, I think, it I think the, the EU would have wanted it that way had they had they had their choice because I think what they wanted people to believe was that they were going to make it so difficult for the UK to leave that nobody else would want to because there are other countries in Europe um, who have got, you know, not great sort of loyalty to the whole idea of the EU and who might, having seen Britain leave, decide to follow suit? I'm not so much sure that there will be a desire to leave the European Union. Maybe a couple of the Scandinavian countries, I don't know, the Swedes or something like that might do it. Mm. Uh, but what is definitely widespread in Europe is a dislike of the euro. And it's... More than more than the EU itself breaking up, I think you're you're much more likely to see a gradual withdrawal from the the euro by some countries because it really is extraordinarily destructive of their economies, particularly countries like Greece and Italy and Spain. Mm. Um, it really is destructive of their economies because it's not what uh, the European Union is not what economists call um, a, an optimal currency area. Right. Basically, that. It's too divergent in terms of costs and labor labor costs and investment and, and many other characteristics. Basically, if you had all the separate currencies, the the cost of something in Greece and the same product in Germany would be really quite different. Mm. Yeah, so that's it's not what they it doesn't have market discipline. No. And in fact, when the euro was first introduced, um, I remember one of my. Uh, uh, Roman law specialist friends, the professor at the University of Edinburgh made a joke along the lines of um, there was more market discipline in the Roman Empire in the second century AD than there is in the European <laughs> Union. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, I've never I never understood how, how that whole Euro thing worked. But listen, that's another conversation for another time, as we are out of time, I'm afraid. Helen, thank you very much indeed. Helen Dale, writer, lawyer, political commentator there on the uh, Brexit getting done. Um, and how much to the chagrin of an awful lot of people who didn't want to leave the EU, uh, the deal is actually pretty good, not only for the UK, uh, but pretty good for a lot of people working in the EU from the UK as well. But if you've got a different view and you think, actually, it's a disaster, by all means, tell me why. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Talk Radio is kicking off 2021 by giving you the chance to score a bank account boosting £10,000 in cash. For the chance to win ten grand in your hand, text the word WIN, that's W-I-N, to 63320. Text entries close at 5pm on Friday the 29th of January. Messages will be charged at £2 plus your standard network rate. Or post your name and number to Balance Booster, P.O. Box 7273, that's 7273, Colchester, CO28XT, by 3pm on the 3rd of February. One correct entrant will then be chosen at random after the competition closes. Go to talkradio.co.uk for terms and conditions. Competition rules apply, and you must be age 18 or over to enter. This competition is active across other wireless stations. Good luck. 10,000 quid. That'd be quite handy, wouldn't it? Let's go to the phones and find out what's going on out there. Alan is in London. Hi, Alan. Hello, mate. All right? Yeah, very well indeed. What can I do for you? Well, first of all, how the Republic. Thank um, you. <laughs> um, smart motorways. Yeah. Like, Not very work. smart, are they? No. Uh, unfortunately, um, my, my sister uh, died on the M25. Oh, goodness. Um, basically, a bit, it's a few mitigating uh, circumstances. Um, 
But the fact is they broke down in a live lane right. at one o'clock in the morning yeah. and consequently got stuffed up the backside by a lorry. Right. Um, towed the car, nearly killed my niece. Um, and and was, she, was she still in the car when it hit them? Um, yeah. Right. That's um, awful, isn't it? It is. Um, and unfortunately, that's, it, that's what happens when people don't listen. Mm. When they first said about, um, I, I, I don't know if um, the, the guy that took my call told you, uh, I spent 15 years in the breakdown recovery industry. Okay. Um, and I'm well aware of uh, IVR, Avro, uh, the RHA and other organisations that try to make um, things as safe as they can be. Mm. And when, when they first come up with the idea of a smart motorway, every single constabulary in the United Kingdom turned around and said, it's a bad idea. Right. So if professional people that use the roads day in, day out, i.e. the police, the breakdown service, the fire engines, the ambulances, everything right. else, and including... Um, the Road Haulage Association yeah. turn around and say to uh, Highways England that this is a bad idea. Yet they still went ahead and done it. I can't imagine what made them think it was ever a good idea. I mean, it doesn't have anything going for it at all, does it? No. Um, if 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 you've ever been a breakdown driver, um, when you actually go for the job you have to do a week's induction. That mm. means sitting there watching videos and stuff like that, and a guy explains to you everything and this, that, and the other. The main rule of picking up anybody off the motorway or are you going, going there to repair their vehicle is to exit on the left-hand side of your vehicle so you're not in the live lane. Right. But unfortunately, due to what they're doing now, the recovery driver and the casualty in front, i.e., I'll call it the casualty, which is the, the broken-down vehicle, yeah. it's in a live lane. Yeah. So not only are you put in the recovery driver um, at risk, you're also putting the occupants of the car in front at risk yeah. of being hit by something behind, and that can happen in a very, very, very short space of time. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, what are the rules, for example, Alan, if you are... Um, supposed to be, I mean, I'm always under the impression that the M25 is, is being watched by somebody so that if a car does break down, they spot it and they get somebody out there. But as I say, my friend was, it was early hours of the morning, uh, it was over an hour before the police got to them. Um, and in my sister's case, um, um, we were quite lucky and quite unlucky, unfortunately. Mm. Um, uh, a lorry driver passed in the opposite direction, saw what had occurred, Stopped his lorry in a life lane, yeah. jumped out and ran across the M25. Um, got in the back of the car with my sister, right. and she got airlifted. And unfortunately, a couple of days later, she she passed. Right. Um, but the actual guy that uh, hit her hmm. was not aware that she was there. Really? He said it happened so quickly right. um, that it. it, it he, he had no time to react. No. Had, well, no, because uh, you're not expecting there to be a stationary car in the middle of a motorway, are you? On top of that, the, the actual section of the M25 where it happened was unlit. Mm. So if you've got a smart motorway yeah. and in, it's in complete darkness and the car in front of you has no lights on, yeah. um, you can hear it. Yeah, of course. So, of course you are. 
I think that basically what what should happen is is that um, the the governing bodies, i.e., the police, the RHA, Avro, IVR, um, everybody else, should go back to Highways England, smack them around the face with a wet fish, and tell them to stop what they're doing yeah. because it's there's, there's going to be more instances of this. Of course, until someone realises, which obviously the coroner has this week. Yeah. Um, that. It's a death trap. I mean, all right, yeah, fair enough. I lost my sister. I nearly lost lost my niece yeah. and her friend in the same accident. But also, the poor guy, the lorry driver, the, the, the guy was in total bits. Oh, of course he would be. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a lose lose for everybody, Alan. Listen, I'm really sorry to hear about your sister. Thanks for for sharing that story with us. But it is awful, absolutely dreadful. There is no thing. There is nothing good about a smart motorway. The idea is bonkers. Mick is in Stoke. Hello, Mick. Hi, Mark. I'm, hey. I'm, I'm, I'm joking up here. I'm, I'm just listening to your last caller. Isn't story, that awful? And it's heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, I can't imagine uh, what sort of a moron would think smart motorways were a good idea. Well, I, to my opinion, I think they've had the idea. They know damn well it's ridiculous and dangerous, hmm. but they're too peg-headed for backtrack. Yeah, and that's that's my opinion. Yeah. See, I tried call the other day. Uh, I, I spoke to Nick Ferrari uh-huh. on LBC about this a few weeks ago as okay. well. Because, see, I, I was rendered disabled about uh, 2018, it was. Mm. Um, and the only stretch of motorway that I'll use at the moment now, well, if it wasn't for lockdown, would be between junction 15 and 16. It's a mile and a half from where I live. Right. And the only reason for that is because it's still got hard shoulder. Yeah. Now, the thing is for me, like I say, I'm disabled. Uh, the, the guys just said, you know, one of the rules is you exit from the passenger side. I can't get over the passenger side because my left leg is basically redundant. It doesn't it does what it wants. My right leg, I've got no strength and I've got muscle waste and nerve damage from a lot prolonged hospital stay. But to get out of my car, I need to open my door fully open. I need to get my frame out the back. I can't use crutches. I have to use frame. Right. So I've got to open my frame up. Um, and that, I mean, this is all on the edge of a, what would you know on a live lane, hoping nothing's going to come behind me and, and hit me there or something hit me while I got me. And, and the speed, and also the speed at which these cars approach on on fast roads or motorways. I mean, by the time you've seen it, it's too late. Yeah, you know? and well, it take I've timed myself once, and I, and it takes me a, a minute, yeah, at least a minute to get out of my car, get me frame, open my frame and walk to the front of my car. Mm. Now, here's my other issue. They're saying about the re- reduce the the safe refugees now by to three-quarters of a mile. Yeah. Now, who yeah. is... Um, so I've made a note of a couple of things. What's, what's, what's the, the chap's name now who does the D, for the DWP on the dis, disability? Oh, um, um, is, it, is, is, is it... Is it um, Justin? Uh, half, um, so I've forgotten his name. No, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway... What he needs to do, if he's, if he's, you know, for the DWP and the, and the, the dis- disability side, he needs to have a look through people's forms, because at least ninety percent of claimants, you'll see on them forms that most people, including myself, can't walk any further than twenty yards. Mm. I can't. So how am I supposed to walk three quarters of a mile to safe haven and then get to the barrier? I can't. I, I can't lift my legs. Right. To get over. The, yeah. Basically, sitting ducks. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And, and there's, there's the, the figures were something like was it 38 people have been killed in the last mm. five years. Yes. Now, the last 12 months we've all been in lockdown. Mm. So how many more could it have been? I know. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah it's, it's it's absolutely crazy. We're going to have to get it changed. 
Absolutely. I really appreciate you calling me. Thank you very much indeed. I mean, clearly, there is no two ways about this. There is no two sides to the argument, uh, because quite often there aren't two sides to every argument. You know, the argument for a smart motorways is redundant, stupid, ineffectual and now deadly. So let's just forget about it, shall we? Let's get on uh, to the Department of Transport and say to Grant Shapps, I'm sorry, this is a bad idea and it's killing people. So stop it and end it now. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 